This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. It seems like everyone around you is getting sick. It might be the trifecta of viruses circulating the country. RSV, flu, and a new strain of COVID-19 are leading to an uptick in respiratory illnesses in most states. The CDC says the latest COVID variant, JN1, is spreading quickly. As of October 2023, more than 25% of adults in the U.S. who've had COVID have experienced long COVID. That's according to the CDC Household Pulse Survey. So what's the latest on COVID-19, and what have we learned about long COVID? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. You've got a lot to get into, so stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Let's get right into the conversation with our experts. Dr. Celine Gounder is an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. She's also editor-at-large for public health at KFF Health News and a member of Biden's Transitions COVID Advisory Board. Dr. Gounder, it's good to have you back. It's great to be here. Also with us is David Petrino. He's the Nash Family Director of the Cohen Center for Recovery from Complex Chronic Illness. He's also the Director of Rehabilitation Innovation for the Mount Sinai Health System and has a doctorate in neuroscience. David, welcome. Thank you for having me. And also with us is Dr. Adrian Hernandez. He's the Executive Director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute at Duke University, and he oversees several studies on the treatment of long COVID. Adrian, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Well, Dr. Gounder, as we said, JN1 is now the most prevalent COVID variant around the world. It accounts for about 62% of cases here in the U.S., and that's according to the CDC. How is this strain different from previous strains? I think it's important to uh, acknowledge or recognize that you're going to see new variants emerging uh, time after time after time. And viruses do what they do, which is they mutate and new variants emerge. And they do so uh, in order to spread more easily from person to person. Uh, Sometimes that can involve evading your immune system. Sometimes that can be in the form of uh, how it could be more contagious. In the case of JN1, it is not evading our immune uh, responses. And so this is really a reflection of it's just 
the virus adapting to spread more easily from person to person. So when you say it's not evading our immune responses, what does that mean for people who have either had COVID before or who are immunized? So in other words, the antibodies and other immune responses that you develop to vaccination or to a prior infection are still going to see the JN1 variant and will still uh, fend off infection against the JN1 variant as robustly as they would uh, for a prior variant. But that doesn't mean that you can't contract COVID. It just means you're less likely to? It means that relative to other variants, your risk of contracting COVID uh, with the immune response that you have are about the same. Uh, Our immune responses are not perfect for preventing infection. They are very good, uh, particularly with vaccination, for fending off severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Uh, But it's just very difficult for the immune system to completely block an infection with COVID, particularly given how short the incubation period. So the incubation period is the time from exposure to when uh, infection sets up. And it's such a short window that it's just hard for the immune system to completely block that from happening. Let's get to some of your questions. One of you texted, how do they determine when we should be really concerned about a new variant or outbreak? Adrian? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, one of the things that we want to watch for is that if a new variant is uh, spreading faster, and especially in um, people that have been previously vaccinated, uh, that would be of concern. We also are looking for variants that um, cause more severe disease uh, that uh, may be impactful in terms of what our current treatments. Uh, Right now, as far as we know, uh, for the JN1, there's no evidence that suggests it causes more severe disease. And as noted earlier, uh, it's really important to stay vaccinated to ensure that we uh, lower the risk of transmission or getting infected. We're going to talk about long COVID a little later in the show, but David, the Cohen Center for Recovery at Mount Sinai has seen thousands of long COVID patients since the start of the pandemic. How have long COVID numbers fluctuated over the last few years? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, we, uh, I, I think potentially the most uh, important number that we keep an eye on at our centre is the results of the CDC Household Pulse Survey, which continues to show steadily increasing numbers of long COVID over time. So as new variants emerge, you know, the, the one thing that I continue to advise people on is the fact that um, whether or not you have severe acute infection does not tell us whether you're going to go on to develop long COVID. So our advice remains avoid infection as 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 much as humanly possible. Take every measure that you can to make sure that you do not get infected because as uh, Ziad Al-Ali recently published in his study of 138,000 veterans, the more times you get infected with COVID-19, the more likely you are to go on to develop long COVID, which is a debilitating at present, lifelong illness that has no current approved treatments. Well, and just so we're very clear, Adrian, what is the difference between acute COVID and long COVID? So, um, uh, you know, for acute COVID is an initial illness that you get uh, with a COVID infection or SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so those are the um, symptoms that people get in terms of, say, uh, developing a cough, you know, et cetera, flu-like symptoms. Uh, Long COVID is when you have persistent symptoms, uh, that uh, uh, you have symptoms that um, uh, persist uh, many months out uh, and uh, can have a lot of variation in terms of uh, how it affects you. 
there are over 200 symptoms that people can have with long COVID and literally can run from uh, head to toe in terms of the types of symptoms that people have, uh, from sleep disturbances to problems thinking uh, to problems uh, in terms of uh, functioning every day. David, how much do we know about how different COVID variants affect whether someone develops long COVID? Um, you know, currently it's an open issue that we, we need to better understand. Um, it, it's a hugely complicated um, question to answer because there are so many variables involved. Um, how, you know, have you been vaccinated? If so, how many times have you been vaccinated and with which vaccines? Um, have you been infected in the past? If so, with which strains? Um, and uh, frankly and unfortunately, we, we do not have the requisite data repository at this time to answer this question with any certainty um, related to which variants place you at greatest risk of, of long COVID. We, we certainly have some information that would lead us toward the risk was greatest at the uh, beginning of the pandemic when people were getting infected with the original strain of the virus and, um, uh, and they were uh, unvaccinated. But uh, the most recent uh, literature reviews on the topic have still shown us that um, now with people who are well vaccinated um, and contracting new strains of COVID vaccine, the risk still sits within 6 to 10% of all infections, which is a staggeringly high number. Well, Dr. Gounder, that leads me to this question around how much data states and the CDC are gathering about infection rates. Well, remember, we're not reporting uh, COVID infections anymore. And part of this is because testing is uh, very inconsistent. Uh, really, your best measure of how much COVID is circulating in the community at this stage is what we call wastewater surveillance, where sewage is tested to see how much COVID is in the sewage. It's not a perfect measure. There are some issues with how sewage might be processed differently in different areas. You have to adjust it for the number of people living in a certain area. But at least it gives us a sense of the trend for how much COVID is circulating in the community. And we know that we are at a high for for this current year uh, at, at the moment in terms of COVID transmission. So if someone is traveling to another part of the country at this point, and they, they want an understanding of what the COVID rates are like in any specific state or, or county, what's the best way to try to get a handle on that? So the CDC is uh, reporting wastewater surveillance data. So if you go to the CDC COVID uh, tracker, uh, you can find some of that data there. You know, again, it's not a perfect measure. And I would just say in general, at the moment, we are seeing very high levels of COVID transmission all around the country. And particularly if you're in a place like an airport or on an airplane where you have people who are from all over the country traveling with you, I think you just have to assume that there is COVID around you. Well, coming up, what we know about long COVID after four years with COVID-19. We'll be back in just a moment. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Let's get back to the conversation by hearing from some of you who shared your concerns about long COVID with us. Hi, Anna from Norwalk, Connecticut. I got COVID in early September and have had chronic inflammation and chronic joint pain ever since. Um, So it has been a bit frustrating. This is Karen Miliato. I'm interested in brain cognition decline uh, having to do with long COVID, which I've had for a bit over a year and a half. Thanks for those messages. So, David, let's start with the basics. When does a COVID diagnosis become long COVID? Yeah, so great question. According to the CDC um, and the World Health Organization, um, once somebody has been experiencing symptoms for about three months after their acute COVID infection and those symptoms are persisting and, and not going away, we start to consider a diagnosis of long COVID. Adrian, are we starting to understand some of the underlying causes of long COVID? I know earlier uh, we mentioned multiple infections. Anything else? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of themes that are uh, coming up is that uh, one is uh, the activation of your immune system, uh, that that can continue going on and affect uh, what how people feel and how people function. Uh, another is um, potentially persistence of the viremia uh, for uh, long COVID. And uh, another I'm sorry, you is, used a term there I'm unfamiliar with. You said yeah, vi- so viremia? Per- persistence, yeah, the virus, uh, and how that may play a role in terms of uh, different organs and tissues. Uh, and then other things that we're seeing is that, you know, uh, if we didn't, we take things for granted, for example, our sleep um, being restorative. Uh, or how we recover from exercise. And uh, long COVID um, may be affecting this directly uh, through effects at at the muscle level or at at the brain. We got this question from Patty who asks, who is most likely to get long COVID? Is the risk related to how bad of a case you have? I mean, David, is it just about the severity of the case or are there certain populations or age groups who are more likely to get long COVID? You know, this is a question that we're we're still working to to understand more fully. Um, certainly, there have been publications that that tell us a few things um, that we know for sure, uh, even if we don't understand exactly why. So we know that women are more likely than men to go on to develop long COVID. We know that um, disease severity does not necessarily, in any way, correlate with your chances of getting long COVID. And we also know that folks who had certain prior immune conditions uh, or autoimmune conditions may be more likely to experience long-term persistent damage as a result of their acute infection. But 
um, right now the the safest approach uh, is to assume that every time you get an acute COVID infection, there is a risk that you will go on to develop long COVID. And so um, infection prevention is really the only strategy that we have to ensure that people don't get long COVID. We got this message from Jay who shares, I still have long COVID symptoms since having a mild case in October 2022. My smell and taste are off. My anxiety has seriously increased and I have other neurological symptoms. There is still so much we don't know about long COVID and it's scary. Just today, the flame on my gas stove went out and it took my kids saying it smells for me to realize it. Adrian, you're overseeing research about long COVID as well. What are some of the most prevalent symptoms we're seeing? Yeah, so it's it's pretty wide. I mean, uh, as I said uh, earlier, there's uh, over 200 symptoms that people can have. And so people can commonly be fatigued. Uh, they can have problems breathing, uh, problems thinking or sleeping. Also, uh, digestive problems such as uh, diarrhea or nausea and stomach pain. And then also joint pain and problems smelling. So uh, there are, uh, unfortunately, a lot of common uh, symptoms. And what you just heard were Uh, Some of them, but there are many others. David, you've managed care for more than 3,000 long COVID patients through your center. What symptoms are you seeing? Yeah, I I would say the the top symptoms that we see tend to be extreme fatigue, um, which is, you know, of course, this sort of this inability to perform uh, physical activity or, or get out of bed and um, and feeling as though your sleep is not refreshing and that you're not able to uh, continue with your daily activities. There's also a distinct symptom that is about is just as common as fatigue called post-exertional malaise. This is a symptom which is quite cruel in that it allows you to actually engage in physical activity, cognitive activity, emotional activity, but then 24 to 72 hours after you engage in that activity, your symptoms increase significantly and your your condition can worsen quite significantly. Uh, We also see cognitive impairment, um, GI symptoms, pain, um, uh, migraines, and um, a a lot of other other symptoms. Uh, um, uh, I totally agree that the the symptomology is is very, very wide. um, And, uh, you know, definitely hundreds of symptoms have been uh, affecting every single organ system have been uh, described in hundreds of publications over the last four years. In Dr. Gounder, I'm remembering a couple of years ago, or maybe it was just a year ago at this point, when we were talking about the inflammatory response the body has to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. How much information is there right now about the role that inflammation plays in these long COVID um, symptoms? Well, there's no question that's part of the story here and that you have this uh, dysregulated, so uh, malfunctioning uh, immune response. So you have too much inflammation in some cases relative to what you really need to fend off the infection. Perhaps you have ongoing inflammation that's not really appropriate to the situation and could be causing damage to tissues and so on uh, and what we see with long COVID. So that's certainly part of uh, the story here. Some of the therapeutics that are being studied are medications to alter uh, to regulate the immune response. We got this question from Maida who asks, does long COVID create or cause a weaker immune system? Adrian, what do we know about the long-term impact on immune systems if you're suffering with long COVID? 
Yeah, we are. We still don't know enough yet. Um, so again, one of the um, theories about long COVID is that there is disruption or dysregulation of your immune system, and that is contributing to all the different symptoms uh, that someone has. Now, whether that also lessens over time is uh, unknown, and so we'll have to wait to see uh, where things unfold. We also got this email from Bob who asks, can you discuss long COVID and exercise intolerance? And I think this might connect to post-exertional malaise. David, something we were discussing earlier. Yes, absolutely. Um, So, you know, this is a really great time for this particular question because – one of uh, one of our colleagues uh, in Europe, Rob Wust, just published an amazing paper showing that when people with long COVID who report experiencing post-exertional malaise are instructed to exercise, um, compared to healthy controls who do not have post-exertional malaise, we see actual damage occurring to their muscle fibers. So we see evidence that the Uh, parts of their muscle cells that produce energy, these are parts of a cell called mitochondria, uh, are not working correctly. And so the body is unable to produce energy to support the muscle activity that is being asked of them. And then as a result, muscle damage begins to occur, which tells us that if uh, your patients with long COVID report that they have post-exertional malaise, telling them to go out there and exercise, which has been um, erroneous advice that has been given to people with post-exertional malaise for decades now, can actually cause damage that may be irreversible. Uh, A recent study showed us that 75% of people with long COVID who had post-exertional malaise were significantly and permanently worsened by attempting exercise um, at their physician's direction. So we need what this means is we need to be extremely cautious about prescribing exercise or assuming that folks with long COVID are simply deconditioned or depressed. We need to understand that long COVID is a clear pathological process and post-exertional malaise means that there is something going wrong with your body's ability to produce energy and trying to force activity uh, is likely to cause harm. And so as a result, we need to actually put down the exercise prescription and educate our patients on energy conservation techniques such as pacing, which are energy conservation techniques that encourage them not to push beyond their limits and explore alternate versions of rehabilitation that can improve function without attempting to improve cardiovascular fitness. Dr. Gounder, briefly before we head to the break, I just want, from your public health perspective, what do you make of the lack of response to long COVID? We heard David say that some of the the centers that have been set up are starting to close. And yet, as we said earlier, 25% of adults in the U.S. who've had COVID have experienced long COVID. That's according to the CDC. So where is the disconnect? Well, I think the disconnect is in terms of uh, the money. Uh, frankly, healthcare services follow where there is money to be made. This is not necessarily a population um, that is going to yield high reimbursement rates uh, for a whole host of reasons. Um, and this is something that we've seen with other similar post-viral syndromes where they're often dismissed and not prioritized at a public health level. Let's take a quick break, but still to come, what lessons are we still learning about public health because of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Let's get back into it by revisiting our inbox. I am questioning the validity of tests. Everyone around me is sick with covid symptoms and all the tests are coming back negative. I'm scared that the tests that we have, the home tests, are not valid. I have a son who has long COVID. He's had it for two and a half years. He's inhabilitated. He's 43 year old, was an athlete, and I'm scared to death that either I'm going to get it or I'm going to bring it home to somebody else and they are going to have long COVID. Thanks for that message. And another of you texted, do the older COVID tests work for the new variant? Now, Dr. Gounder, this is a question we get a lot. How confident should people feel about using the testing kits that are available at their local pharmacy or grocery store right now? So what has changed is not whether the tests detect uh, the, the virus uh, when, you, when you test yourself using these at-home um, uh, rapid antigen tests for COVID, What has changed is how quickly you develop symptoms after exposure and infection. So it used to be it would take a bit longer to develop symptoms because your immune response was uh, not kicking in as quickly. Your immune system was not so familiar with the virus, if at all. Now that your immune system has had exposure to the virus and or vaccination, uh, your immune system kicks in much more quickly. The symptoms you have are very often related to the immune response. So things like fevers, chills, and so on are very much related to the immune response. And so that window between infection uh, and developing symptoms, because it's so much shorter, the tests, although they're performing as well as they did before, may show up negative uh, when you're at the very early stages of that infection and immune response. Let's go back to our inbox. Hi, this is Xander from Golden, Colorado. I recently got my booster, but still came down with COVID three weeks later. I'd like to hear more about how the latest vaccines and variants of COVID interact. Thank you. Thanks for that message, Sander. Dr. Gounder, what is the latest information on how boosters are keeping up with the latest variants? We're trying to keep up. Um, The booster this fall was updated for a variant that was circulating earlier this year, not the current JN1 variant. Um, It's a fairly good match. I think the main thing is to acknowledge that vaccines do not prevent all infection. Immunity, uh, whether it's acquired from an infection or vaccination, is not going to prevent all future infections. What you're really trying to do is prevent the worst of the infection, so the hospitalizations, the deaths. And from that perspective, uh, the vaccines are performing as, as we would like. Adrian, I want to kind of come back to you because you oversee clinical trials looking into five different areas where long COVID patients are suffering. And we're talking about viral persistence, um, brain impairments, sleep, dizziness when people stand up, and exercise intolerance, as we were describing earlier. What do we know about how quickly treatments are coming along for some of these symptoms? 
Yes. <clears throat> so um, there are ongoing trials uh, to uh, evaluate different interventions for different aspects of uh, long COVID. And so uh, over the um, coming months to um, uh, next few years, uh, we'll see results uh, from these studies. But we'll do two things. You want to uh, understand whether any of these treatments uh, can improve an area of symptoms, uh, such as brain fog or dizziness or sleep problems or exercise, et cetera, as well as understand what may go be going on in terms of why people have these symptoms and why an intervention may um, work or not work. And, and there's also other studies that have that are smaller that are starting to come out uh, now as well. Last Tuesday, the California Department of Public Health updated its isolation recommendations for people who catch COVID. Instead of the CDC's five-day isolation guideline, California now recommends focusing on clinical symptoms to decide when to stop isolating. Adrian, what's your best advice for people who are wondering how long to isolate if they're infected? Yeah, well, you know, some people actually uh, do repeating testing to see uh, if they still have um, uh, evidence of an active uh, COVID infection. Uh, but most people are following the CDC uh, guidelines. David, when you think about response to the pandemic and where we are right now in the U.S., where do you think we should be getting guidance for public health guidelines? Who do you think should be setting those standards? Um, well, you know, I, I would say that it is the responsibility of a government to protect its people, um, and so when we have uh, when we have individuals sort of passing the buck and saying, "Well, it's not really our place, and everyone should just decide their risk for themselves," um, I, that doesn't really fly. Um, you know, especially in the face of the data that we have. So I, I do think that we need more representation from the federal government. We need more representation from the CDC uh, informing people honestly about what the risks of an acute infection are. The, 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 the sort of terrible smoke and mirrors um, message that has been put out um, across the entire pandemic is that death is the only serious outcome of an acute COVID infection. And we know that not to be the case. The CDC knows it not to be the case um, because it's published on their website. We, we know that long COVID is serious. We know that it is now affecting 6% of the population. We know that David Cutler, who is a Harvard-trained uh, economist, published in JAMA that the, the national uh, uh, sort of deficit as a result of long COVID is $2.7 trillion per year in lost productivity. Um, and, and so people, you know, need to be asking themselves, can I afford to get a lifelong disability as a result of a so-called inconsequential infection um, and, and really need to start questioning what the CDC is telling them because uh, we, we need a little bit more honesty from the CDC about longer-term risks of an acute COVID infection. Well, that takes me to this email from Miranda who says, I want to throw out a question about the current COVID environment. I feel like there has to be a social norm that lies somewhere between the opinion that everyone who doesn't mask is a monster and that COVID is no longer a threat at all. What is reasonable here? I'd love to just briefly in a, in a couple of sentences hear from each of you. Dr. Gounder, I'll come to you first. 
Well, you know, unfortunately in the U.S. we have had a very individualistic approach to health. Um, really from the beginning of uh, the pandemic, it's been about how you can protect yourself uh, in terms of masking, later in terms of vaccination. Um, and this is very different from what we see in other countries where there's more of a communal approach mindset about these things. I'm not sure that uh, mandates are really the way to address that. I think it's really more about changing the culture of health and public health. And that's a much longer term endeavor here. David? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say that I, I want everyone to make informed choices, um, meaning I want everyone to understand what their actual risk is of uh, of death, of course, uh, from an acute COVID infection, but also from lifelong disability from an acute COVID infection, um, and and really just have an honest understanding of what their risks are. But from from my perspective, um, when we're facing a a chronic condition that is affecting six percent of Americans right now at this moment, and that number continues to climb every time the CDC does a household pulse survey. We need to understand that this pandemic is not over until we have a way to completely avoid COVID infections or we have a way to treat long COVID once and for all to cure it. Um, until then, every time you contract COVID-19, you're risking lifelong uh, debilitating illness. Adrian, I'd love your thoughts. And, and just as a reminder, Miranda was asking about a, a social norm that lies somewhere between if you don't wear a mask, you're a monster, and COVID is no longer a threat. Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple things here. You know, one is actually there's some broader benefits of actually taking care of yourself and the others around you. Uh, no one wants to get the flu or RSV as well. And so if you're actually taking uh, care of yourself by masking or uh, not coming in contact if you're sick, uh, with others, then actually that's important. So it could be uh, for a benefit for all for different viruses as well as uh, COVID. And the second thing is that I think we also just need to recognize that there are many norms that we take for granted for to, to prevent um, other people having uh, problems. Uh, so how we drive, uh, how we wear seatbelts, uh, and, and so forth. It's actually managing yourself as well as protecting others and that we should be transmitting to what we do with uh, COVID or other infections. Well, so many of you sent us questions. We want to make sure we get to a few more of them. One of you sent this. Will there be a time when the COVID vaccines are on more of a schedule? We got our most recent booster in late spring. Am I missing something from the feds about this advice? Dr. Gounder, any clarity? I think we're likely moving towards a yearly update in the booster, but that's not to say that um, you would be getting a booster every year. I think it'll depend a bit on the patient population. There's some populations, for example, if you're an elderly person living in a nursing home, I think there may be an argument to be made that you should be getting boosted a couple times a year. If you're a young, healthy person who's completed their vaccination series, has no risk factors, there may be less of a case to be made for an annual vaccination. So I think some of this uh, remains to be seen, but I do think you will see probably yearly updates in the vaccine. And a member of the text club asks, I think so many people view COVID as just another cold. Why should we continue to get COVID vaccinations and who should get them? Adrian? Uh, yeah, so, um, well, I think as uh, we've been discussing, uh, preventing long COVID is um, uh, really important. So preventing acute COVID is really important to do so. And, and for that reason, getting vaccinated is important if you haven't been vaccinated. 
And also, if you, um, importantly, if you are immunocompromised or have medical conditions that put you at higher risk, uh, staying up to date with your vaccinations is also very critical. Now, as we said earlier, there are no approved treatments for long COVID, but John emailed this question. I've heard mixed things about the role of Paxlovid in preventing long COVID. Can your guests provide any insight? David? Um, you know, this this is a topic that is still uh, being uh, being investigated, and uh, I would say the, the most um, impactful publication on this was from uh, Ziad Al-Ali's group at the at the VA hospital. Um, and uh, they showed that there was a, a sort of significant reduction in risk of developing long COVID um, with the use of Paxlovid. But as, as many rightly pointed out, um, uh, the reduction of severity of acute infection with Paxlovid in an older population um, led to less hospitalizations and less people getting a diagnosis of long COVID uh, because they were still experiencing long-term effects of their severe acute infection. Um, So in that regard, it seemed to reduce your risk of long COVID. But for folks who may not have gotten a severe acute infection in the first place, um, the jury's still out as to whether Paxlovid um, has a role in reducing your risk of long COVID in, in that particular case. Well, we'll have to leave the discussion there for the moment. We've been speaking with David Petrino. He's the Nash Family Director of the Cohen Center for Recovery from Complex Chronic Illness. Dr. Adrian Hernandez, he's the Executive Director of the Duke Clinical Research Institute at Duke University. And Dr. Celine Gounder, she's an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. She's also editor-at-large for public health at KFF Health News and a member of Biden's Transitions COVID Advisory Board. Thanks to you all. We'll end on this message from AK, who shares how they're trying to keep safe. I live in a small town in central Kansas. We have one pharmacy and a Dollar General. The regional hospital has seen a significant rise in COVID cases. I could not find any masks in town, so the pharmacy ordered some for me. They should be in today. Well, you heard from lots of members of the 1A Text Club today. That's a great way to connect with the show. Just head over to the 1A.org, click Connect with 1A, and you can sign up there. Today's show was produced by Jorgelina Manorea and Anna Casey. This episode was edited and produced by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com thematic investing. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. 
Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.